Ice Theaters, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the Ice Theaters experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. Ice Theaters, meet us at Cine Europe, booth 107. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined by our colleagues and co-host, Ross Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters, and Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, for our third and final weekly installment of our Cine Europe 2023 series, Brought to you by our partners at Ice Theaters and supported by our friends over at Christie. Russ, Rebecca, welcome. Uh, so much to cover. Russ is going to be going into his experience in Barcelona last week. Rebecca and I are going to be talking about box office in just a moment. And then in our feature segment, we will be joined by Christie's Vice President of Engineering, David Kears. And in our feature interview, Crispin Lilly, the new managing director for the UK cinemas of Showcase Cinemas, the exhibition arm of National Amusements. Wow, that was a lot to go through. I'm just like getting back into the podcast swing of things. How are you guys doing? Uh, I know we've been between international traveling, a little bit of paternity leave on my end, and Rebecca just like nonstop work. I think I've probably had more sleep than you have had. You probably and your wife combined because you have a new baby now. And yeah, that's that's intense. Russ, you also probably haven't been getting great sleep because of the jet lag. I hope the jet lag isn't that bad. When did you get back from Barcelona? It's been good. I stayed in Barcelona an extra day. So I took Friday for myself. I, I mean, I actually did some work while I was there. Had a very lazy day, you know, and that was nice. But no, I got back Saturday evening into into the States. I was home like seven o'clock Saturday night. I wasn't jet lagged on either end. I did okay. No, Barcelona is a wonderful city. Great restaurants, great food. And of course, that great exhibition convention that happens every June through our partners over at Unique, produced by our friends over at the Film Expo Group Cine Europe. First, we have to recap the box office. Uh, we've got a couple of big new releases here this weekend. Well, one really big one, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and uh, an animated title coming out from Universal called Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. Rebecca and I are going to be going over what the box office pro forecast is for those titles shortly. Before we do that, Rebecca, we do have to go over our expectations for the holdovers coming into next week because, man, it's been uh, weird weekends here at the box office. The Flash didn't work. I'm gone for like two weeks and like the DC Extended Universe craters. Just like, that's it. And if anyone thought that, oh, maybe word of mouth will help on this film after it debuted below our expectation range below, I think anybody's expectation range last week. Uh, no, nah, that didn't happen. Uh, the Flash fell 72% in its sophomore frame uh, to $15.2 million. Third place got beat out by Elemental, which actually had like a pretty okay, a pretty mild drop of... Uh, which is good. Yeah. And we've, we've been talking about how Pixar's really been struggling out of the gate coming back from the pandemic, coming back from those titles going straight to Disney plus that mid June release date that Pixar always, always hit out of the park has been a struggle for the studio since Lightyear in the same corridor didn't work. That was proven IP. This is new original IP Neither of them work out of the gate, but at least we're seeing the hold here, which gives me a little bit of faith on word of mouth and on the availability of family titles in the market. In terms of holdovers, the holdover king was still uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which in its fourth week uh, went back up to the number one spot, only a 29% drop to $19.3 million. I mean, I need to see the movie in theaters again. Like when I saw it, it, it played like gangbusters. It was, it was amazing. Though in terms of new releases, we had out uh, in fourth place, No Hard Feelings with $15.1 which was 
pretty good. Like it was on, I saw a lot of like good word of mouth on it, some good reviews. It kind of came out just a little bit above the high end of our expectations, but but it did pretty well. It was definitely uh, good news at the box office for that film uh, and for Asteroid City's expansion, which is it's outpacing in terms of uh, averages and, and general box office. I think it's it's doing better than Grand Budapest Hotel even at this point, which was kind of the high watermark for Anderson films. This weekend, as you mentioned, Daniel, from Universal, the DreamWorks animated film, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. And I wonder, I mean, what, what impact it's going to have on if Elemental's second week hold was pretty good. I mean, I, I wonder what sort of impact Ruby Gilman is going to have on that hold, if any, considering, I mean, maybe people who went and saw Elemental, you know, saw some of the posters, saw some of the marketing for Ruby Gilman. I certainly didn't. So I do think that whether the marketing is there or isn't, it's always tough to come in with an unproven IP, especially a family IP in the marketplace. I think it's positive that we have multiple options for family audiences at the multiplex. I'm glad to see Elemental hold. Ruby Gilman, we're not expecting a massive opening weekend here. The box office pro forecast is coming in between 13 and $18 million for the weekend. Of course, these are figures that are bringing in the tracking as of the recording of this episode. For the latest forecast and box office results, go to boxofficepro.com. And I think what you mentioned, Rebecca, maybe it isn't going to have clear highway ahead of it because you have Elemental holding uh, better than expected, which is a positive thing. The other big title coming out this weekend is something that we do have to bring in some level of analysis Because it was always going to be risky whenever you bring in a big summer tentpole from a major studio and you premiere it at the Cannes Film Festival months before its theatrical release, you roll the dice. Martin Scorsese did that with uh, Paramount and Apple's Killers of the Flower Moon. Great reviews. The buzz hype train starts in May. Great play. Disney and Indiana Jones with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Let's just say that initial reaction out of Cannes was tepid. Russ, you were at the all-media screening for this. You've seen it. No spoilers, of course. But how much of a challenge is it going to have in terms of word of mouth, do you think? I think it has some hurdles to clear. I'm wondering if it's another one that doesn't get past the 100 million opening. I mean, another one that, like The Flash, looked like it definitely was going to be a $100 million opener at one point. No one's saying that that Indiana Jones is going to, you know, do so poorly as Flash on its opening weekend. But I think if it doesn't hit 100 million, that'll that'll be a disappointment in some form. Yeah, I think 100 is going to be tough. But that said, it does have an advantage in that, you know, I think Flash is an interesting thing because it was a movie that obviously tracking estimated much higher. Warner Brothers did a lot of work to try to prepare people for the notion that it was great. And I think there's a those efforts were met with more than a slight degree of cynicism on the part of audiences, because I think Warner Brothers has really struggled to sell a cohesive vision of DC Comics movies. And so I think there was a lot of good reason to doubt what we were being told about like The Flash is the greatest superhero movie ever. But Flash faced a lot of hurdles and it's weird because part of me is, you know, there's an interesting comment from Chris Miller, Chris Miller, half of the Phil Lord and Chris Miller team who were have been behind the Spider-Verse movies. And, you know, they were asked about the idea of superhero fatigue, which is a valid question. And Chris Miller's answer was, I don't believe it's superhero fatigue. I believe it's a movie that feels like a movie I've seen a dozen times before. It's, fatigue. it's just generic movie fatigue. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that that's a, you know, a simple but astute point that maybe addresses what happened with The Flash, because I think you could be tempted to say like, oh, audiences don't care about a multiverse, but here, into, you know, across the Spider-Verse is doing gangbusters. But Across the Spider-Verse is clearly showing us something that we haven't seen before. They're showing us a thing in a way that we haven't seen it before. And it was very clear that they've pushed boundaries further, whereas The Flash just didn't seem to be doing that, seemed to be relying on the nostalgia of Michael Keaton in a way that maybe it doesn't exist. But it seems like those hurdles you're describing could equally apply to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It seems like they're relying highly on the nostalgic factor of Harrison Ford. You're coming off of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Granted, you know, 
that was years ago, but still that was like most people's most recent lasting impression of the Indiana Jones franchise. This is the first one without Spielberg and the bad can reaction. Like that's, it's also not in a great position going into opening weekend previews. And those are the hurdles that I'm talking about. And that is kind of why a very long digression, but to come around to, yes, I agree with you explicitly that the problems that the things that were problems for the flash are potentially also big problems for Indiana Jones. I think that what Indiana Jones has on its side is that it's not as familiar a movie as the flash. We don't, see a lot of movies like the Indiana Jones films. Granted, the last big one that we saw was Uncharted and it didn't perform. And certainly didn't perform but, but in a way it that I think out, anybody it came out at a pretty bad time. Like a, that's no one question. of those asterisk movies. Yeah. It is an asterisk movie, unquestionably. I mean, I think Indiana Jones is really going to come down to word of mouth and how much general audiences are willing to play along with its concepts. My take on Dial of Destiny is that it's just, it's stronger than Crystal Skull, but it's not as strong as the other Indiana Jones movies. And is it as strong as the stuff that's going to come out in the following weeks? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of difference between Indiana Jones franchise and the Mission Impossible franchise, but to a certain extent, they're both kind of big budget, splashy action adventure things, and they're coming out pretty close together. They are. Yeah. And I think that Mission is in a better position. And and also, you know, Indiana Jones has things like the digital de-aging of Harrison Ford, which is a tricky proposition. And as we mentioned, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny expected to be the runaway movie here at the top spot in the domestic box office. Still $100 million, probably out of reach for the title. I think on the low end, low, low, low benchmark for this would be around $68 million. Anything below that, I think, is a big alarm. And I said, like, what I said earlier, that, you know, anything hundred under $100 million would be a disappointment. Like, I think that's maybe true in the sense of it's symbolic, it's a nice round number, but like, I don't think if this movie gets under a hundred, it's necessarily like a failure or bad. Like even the weekend that The Flash and Elemental came out, I mean, those were the big headlines that those two movies tanked, but that movie, that weekend did better than the equivalent weekend in 2019. So, I mean, we don't, we definitely don't want to play into that narrative of like, oh, the sky is falling because certain tentpoles don't do well as some people said they would. It's that difference between potential and market conditions. I think, and you mentioned it really well just now, Rebecca, I think the potential of something like Indiana Jones 5 does tell you $100 million weekend. The market conditions of where we are now, where the marketing campaigns are now, where the box office is now, tells us that maybe expecting $100 million is expecting too much out of this title, which in itself is disappointing. But uh, yeah, I think right now that range of 68 to $95 million days before release is probably going to be around where this falls in. A domestic run between 200 and 300 million around there. I know it's a big swing there, but we are expecting a big hit from Disney to help audiences come in and, and, and fill theaters. Is it going to be the biggest one of the year? No. Could it have been? That's a conversation for a different time, and that might have been a different movie that got us there. But uh, talking about movies and uh, potential and everything coming up, we've got Ross Fisher, who's already here, going into the entirety of Cine Europe 2023. That is coming up right after this message from our partners at Christie. What does it take to create the technology behind cinema magic? If you look at Can, BFI, other shows that are considered the best of the best, you'll find Christie in every projection booth. The reason for that is the quality and passion they put into their products. This is cinema equipment built by cinema enthusiasts. It's technology that loves cinema. If you want to know more about how they're advancing the future of cinema or modernizing traditional Xenon systems, check them out at christydigital.com forward slash cinema. And thanks again to our partners over at Christie and to our presenting sponsor, Ice Theaters, for their support of the Box Office Podcast. They're the reason we were able to make it out to Cine Europe this year and giving us that boots-on-the-ground perspective of the show in Barcelona. Russ Fisher is here to tell us about his experience. Well, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, you know that kind of most caught my ear from the last uh, last week's episode where you kind of ran down your impressions from the first half of the show, the Nebula sort of like vibe checked thing is, is always good to hear because you like you literally cannot get that if you're not physically at the show. You said 
last week, the impression you were getting is that the relationship between international European exhibitors and studios has maintained maybe a little more of that tension than than exists or than existed like at CinemaCon this year between domestic exhibitors and studios. Did that impression change at all? No, it didn't change. I mean, as I talked to exhibitors, I talked to a lot of them, the consistent thing that came up, you know, just the like, hey, how's business? What's playing for you? What's not playing? And the thing that everybody said is that Disney Plus is a problem. Like a universal refrain is that they feel like they're really still being boned by Disney Plus. Disney movies are not playing, not playing the way they used to. You know, big titles like The Little Mermaid, like, you know, Elemental, any of these titles would have been really significant earners for even small exhibitors years ago. That's wild. Like if you, Daniel, was it 2019 where like granted domestically the top 10 films, eight of them were Disney? Yeah. And I mean, I I think that what we have to keep in mind here is, is not that these movies aren't making any money. Like Ross is saying, they're not making as much as they used to. It's not that we can like exist without Disney and everything's fine and, and we'll leave them in the rear view. No, no, Disney's still crucial to theatrical exhibition at a global level. But like you say, Russ, that impact of Disney Plus, once you leave North America and you look at the international box office, it's really slowing down that full recovery, that 2019 level recovery in many, many markets. So two points to that go along with all of that. One is that PLF is extremely important to everybody. And the other thing is that box office numbers are good. Everybody's cautiously like, okay, we're getting back to 2019 levels. But the number of tickets being sold is not anywhere close to pre-pandemic levels. You know, you've got certain demographics, especially younger audiences, are just not back in the same way that they need to be back in order for everybody to really be in a healthy position. And you know what, Rose? These are things that we heard at last year's Cine Europe. Disney movies are here, but they're not performing the way they used to. Audiences are coming back, but we really need the younger audiences to come back more often. PLF is helping the box office numbers, but the admission numbers tell us a different story. And I know these are concerns that are unfortunately going to still be part of the industry, at least in Europe, through most of this year here in 2023. Another big factor that is really slowing down the recovery on a market-by-market basis is piracy. You mentioned a little bit ago, Russ, just the impact that Disney Plus has had in really winnowing down that box office impact of Disney titles internationally. You have also other things to contend with, universal titles, hitting PVOD five weeks into the theatrical run, including movies like Fast and the Furious, which are huge global earners. That is going to hurt the legs. You have focus features titles that are up three weeks after their domestic debut that is hurting specialty cinemas, art house cinemas in Europe because of that availability of those titles now having pristine digital copies. What's been the take on piracy as an issue overall right now for the industry in Europe? Yeah, I think it's still seen as as significant. And the problem is that it has evolved into new forms that are more difficult to control or to shut down. I think if you're a certain age, like my age, or even maybe a little bit younger millennial, maybe still the idea of piracy is like, you know, torrenting movies or something like that. And that is pretty far down the list of important concerns when you look at piracy right now. And now I think it's just like, it's it's not that that is not a problem. I think it remains a problem. But the issue is kind of twofold. One is that you get these sites that are basically just bootleg streaming sites where some of them are free. Some of them actually, you know, charge like a subscription for access via PayPal or something like that. In Latin America, it's something that's been a huge problem with cable television, where you buy the knockoff cable television, the special streaming stick that you pay through PayPal or Venmo, as you mentioned, Russ, and you get access to all this pirated content. The evolution of this, like you mentioned, it's not like you're going into some shady torrent site. You can just go get an Amazon Fire Stick that's been jailbroken with God knows what software, and by Venmoing or PayPaling $3 a month, you get first-run studio titles. Almost doesn't feel like you're stealing. 
<laughs> well, that's the thing. And, and one of the points that was made on, on the piracy panel that I went to, and this point was made repeatedly, is that perhaps the biggest problem around piracy is there is no social stigma about it anymore. The idea is, you know, it's fine. And maybe not even, it's fine, but the idea is that people don't even think about it because to them, it's just streaming. And they, it's kind of like, who cares if I'm watching these movies by subscribing to Netflix or subscribing to, you know, torrentfile.zz. That's a bad name, but it doesn't matter. The point being that like, <laughs> no, do, do, do I, you know, do I give five bucks via PayPal or five euro via PayPal to whoever? And then I get access to, all the titles from Netflix and HBO and Amazon and the BBC and whatever, you know, Disney Plus, whatever service. I think that that is bundled into frustration with some of those companies on a company side. Even in the US, you're seeing piracy getting more acceptable as services like, you know, Max and Paramount Plus cancel shows and just remove shows from their services you're seeing this whole thing where people are like, yeah, the only way to actually protect some of this stuff as content is to pirate it. Like that attitude is becoming prevalent and common. I'll be very honest with you guys. A lot of my relatives in Mexico pay for these Amazon Fire Sticks that are like $5 a month to get a bunch of pirated streaming content. Every time I get into discussion on them saying like, hey, (laughs) I'm your nephew. This is hurting me and my industry. They tell me, I'm not pirating. I'm paying $5 a month. How can I be pirating if I'm paying money? If I'm paying there's a, there's a confusion here. Exactly. There's a confusion here from the consumer in saying, wait, it's, it's all streaming, right? It's all just one endless spigot of anything I could ever want to watch. What's the difference between Netflix and this clearly pirated service? The consumer doesn't know that. The consumer doesn't know. And that that guilt of like, oh, I'm stealing something, I'm getting something camcorded, I think it's a hazier, blurrier line when the difference between paying Netflix and paying someone that you know that just sold you a streaming stick is not that clear cut as it used to be. Obviously, here we're talking about streaming content, but when you have a service like Disney Plus where theatrical releases are are on the service quickly. You know, when universal movies are available on digital very quickly, people, you know, what people have learned is that they don't have to wait very long and then they get access to it. And then, you know, maybe they're not even paying an official channel to get that access. And they don't feel bad about it because, like you say, everybody's just like, well, I'm paying for it. So I don't understand. There's nothing wrong here. So there's a big kind of re education effort that needs to happen in a way. This is part of why the emphasis exists for PLF. You know, I think exhibitors are very much understanding that it's like the way, the only guaranteed way to get people back is to promise them something that they can't have at home. And so that's why comfortable seating, that's why huge screens, all of these things are becoming major priorities. But then are you just giving up? That is a great question. Other group of people who maybe don't. I mean, I I think that that is not only a good question. I think it's one of the most important questions. I think one of the most important questions that studios and exhibitors alike face over the next few years is how do we do this on a consistent basis when you can only use PLF to lure people in so often? Like you need to get people, you you need to put butts in seats with the offer of an IMAX screen or something, but you need to keep them in seats to see, you know, the Jennifer Lawrence R-rated comedy, to see, you know, any number of mid-range titles. And I don't know that there's a strategy in place to do that right now. And I don't think anybody knows what that strategy would be. That is the huge, huge elephant in the room. It's a sentence you mentioned last week, Russ, that it feels a little bit like the 1950s all over again. <laughs> yeah, right. With home entertainment, with bigger screens, with bigger amenities, you're doing everything you can. But what gets squeezed out of that equation? Oftentimes, it's that mid-range film. So it's great to see when a Jennifer Lawrence movie performs better than expected at the box office, as we saw last weekend. Can that happen consistently? How can we get there? On the other side of the equation, you can't blame exhibitors for looking at where distribution and studios 
prioritize their investment going into the home and saying, hey, we have to compete with our biggest partners. Let's make sure that we get the latest premium large format technology in our theaters. We heard in last week's episode from Guillaume Tomin de Masur of Ice Theaters on just everything that Ice Theaters is doing is a new premium large format to go in and expand international and an expansion that we've been seeing in India with local productions, with Bollywood movies coming out in this format, new locations opening in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, an Asian expansion of this format. This is this Ice Theaters format is something that just came in really, what, three, four years ago? It's fairly recent. Another very recent player in the premium format uh, landscape is Cinity from our other advertiser in this week's episode, Christy. Cinity is such an exciting technology. I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners are too aware of it because as of now, it's only really available in China. Very few locations can offer it. Russ, before we hear a little bit more from Christy, can you tell us a little bit more on that uh, Cinity format? Because you actually attended a demo of a full Cinity auditorium while you were at Cine Europe. Yeah. Yeah, I went to see Cinity in action. And it's the pitch for Cinity at that demo was very concise. It was this is a PLF you can own, where, you know, there's, I don't know what the buy in is, but there's a high buy in, but it is a buy in, not you're not licensing or renting. You don't, it's not like you've got to enter into a licensing agreement with IMAX or something like that. What it is is a dual projection. 120 frame per second, 4K 3D system. So what does that mean? What it means is it looks eye-wateringly incredible in terms of the detail that's presented. This demo was done with extended sequences from Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and Gemini Man, both Ang Lee movies that were released in 2016 and 2019, respectively. And then they also showed, I think, three sequences from Avatar The Way of Water, where which, of course, those were only... So the, the two Ang Lee movies were filmed at 120. And so here they were being shown in like effectively their native format, which is the first time I'd happen, had an opportunity to see the footage like that. And it's so insanely clear and vivid that, yeah, it doesn't, they kind of don't look like movies. And then there was the Avatar footage, which there was a degree of interpolation there because the 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 upper frame rate threshold on those was 48 frames per second so for some of the sequences in in avatar the way of water they'd basically interpolated it up to a higher frame rate and the effect was impressive i mean i loved the way of water when i saw a 3d imax presentation of it and this footage looked better and it looked like so much so that it was like ah, it it almost like hurts to look at in you know the action but the underwater sequences were like good lord this is phenomenal certainly you know I, there are a good uh, dozens of sanity screens in china i think there're nine in europe and so in china there is clearly a content pipeline here but in the West, I don't know what the content pipeline is at this point. And to hear a little bit more about that, let's hear from our colleague over at Christie, David Kears, the Vice President of Engineering, who will be able to give us more details on where that leading cinema technology manufacturer is at with some of its technology, some of those partnerships, and what Christie's priorities are for the coming years. That's coming up shortly after the break. And then after that, to finish up, this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast, we've got Crispin Lilly, the Managing Director of the UK Cinema Circuit for Showcase Cinemas. That's coming up in our feature segment. So please don't go. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Rebecca. Great, great to be back here and have this conversation. And uh, we'll be back after the break. And we are back with David Kears of Christie, their Vice President of Engineering. David, it's, it's great to, to speak with you and to hear a little bit more about Christie, specifically, as we'll talk about later in this interview, some of those sustainability efforts, which I know have been uh, really a, a key part of Cine Europe's programming so far this year. Can you give me a little sense, first off, just of what Christie's presence is like at the show this year? Yeah, we have a very busy booth here. You see a, a good cross-section of all of our latest cinema projectors, as well as we'll be debuting our IMB S4, uh, 
fully redeveloped media block for cinema projectors. You mentioned IMB, an integrated media block. Most audience members, you know, when they go see a movie from, from their perspective, what they know is when they see a Christie product, they just know it looks good, you know. For people who maybe want to get more into the nuts and bolts of it, for people behind the scenes who want to know a little bit about this technology, and just for me, what is an integrated media block? Rebecca, great question. What is a media block? A media block is essentially the device that allows the playback of the movie. So it's similar to your Blu-ray player at home, where it's taking a digital media file and converting it into a format that the projector can recognize and play out. For the cinema movies, for movies from Hollywood and any other studios, they encrypt those movies to ensure that they can't be pirated in an electronic format. So the media block also contains all of the necessary software and features to decrypt the movie to allow it to be played back on the cinema projector. You have to make sure that everything looks as perfect as the filmmakers intended and to. that's the beauty of our cinema projectors is our goal is to make sure we give accurate frame for frame representation of exactly what the, the creators of the movies wanted you to see so that includes the, the frame rate the brightness the, the color the contrast every aspect of that movie frame we want to make sure frame by frame is displayed exactly how the creatives wanted it to be done now um it's kind of tough sometimes to talk about things uh like high frame rate or high dynamic range because obviously those are just words some moviegoers might not know what these things are high frame rate high contrast high brightness high color we've seen some of that like there have been some high frame rate movies that have come out What's the evolution of those things now, and and how are they being used more uh, in the cinema community? Yeah, so we've seen high frame rate movies going back as long ago as a decade with Peter Jackson and the Hobbit movies. Since that point, there's been a lot of learning that has gone into what it takes to make a, a movie work in high frame rate, to increase that level of realism while maintaining... Our, our sense of belief that we're being immersed into the movies, that you can't just crank the frame rate up and have it, it look more real because it starts showing other minor issues with the content that you can see sets and you can see makeup. The studios have had to learn how to work with the higher frame rate, with the higher realism that can be achieved to make sure that they're not giving you so much information that it's pulling you out of that sense of engagement in the movie. Not stuff you're going to be able to use in your home system. (laughs) No, this is a different level than what you can see in your home system. Everyone was watching uh, everything for a few years there, pretty much on their televisions. And now we're seeing in the past two years, audiences coming back to cinemas. They're really craving the big spectacle of it all. We want to make sure that every time you go to the movie theaters, it doesn't matter whether it's a tentpole release that you're seeing on opening weekend or or whether it's an indie release that you're seeing in your local theater that everyone has an absolutely exceptional experience when they, they go to the movie theater. We want our exhibition partners to have access to those latest technologies that make people want to come out from their homes and get together with people and experience things in a group. We, we are social creatures and we, we do better when we can do things together and movie theaters exemplify that. David, I can tell uh, you're, you're really passionate about, about Christine, about the technology here and, and definitely the cinema industry is one where you get into it and then it kind of gets its, gets its hooks into you. <laughs> What is the main focus for you and your team at the moment? As we have come out of this pandemic and as we see the world changing, we also recognize that energy efficiency and our carbon footprints are really mattering. So what we have been focusing on and continue to focus on is what we can do to lessen our impact on the planet as we move forward. Our latest generation of projectors that we've launched are the most efficient in the industry. This is built on the the back of our new RGB laser light source that allows us to have energy efficiency numbers that are more than double what was possible with a xenon projector. We, over the last two years, relaunched all of our cinema projectors to use our latest RGB laser light source. So when we're developing that system, 
we had been optimistic that we would see good improvement in our energy efficiency. And as we were going through the development, the efficiencies actually exceeded our expectations, which then convinced us we were on the right path and we had to accelerate what we were doing. And we're really, really proud of the fact that we now have the most energy efficient line of projectors for the cinema industry in the market. And a big thank you to David Kears, the Vice President of Engineering over at Christie. And a huge thank you to Christie for their support of the Box Office Podcast at Cine Europe 2023. And now, after this break, our final interview in this big European series of episodes, we've got Crispin Lilly, the Managing Director of UK Cinemas over at Showcase Cinemas. That's coming up after the break. A great interview conducted by my colleague, Rebecca Pauly. Crispin, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Can you tell me about how you started off in the industry? Because you've worked for a lot of different chains in a lot of different capacities. I fell into the industry by accident. I took a summer job in the cinema after college and still looking for a proper job, to be honest. 32 years on, I was very fortunate. I worked through very different chains in MGM Cinemas, Virgin, UGC, and then Cineworld from 2004 to 2014. My final role at Cineworld 10 years ago was as VP of Business Affairs, so I was looking after film, retail, screen advertising, and and the like. At that point, I left um, and joined Everyman Cinemas here in the UK as their CEO and spent seven years um, helping them on their brilliant success journey. I joined, they have 10 sites when I left there at 35, and they're plowing on still, which is terrific to see. And then, yeah, most recently I've joined uh, National Amusement Showcase Cinemas here in the UK as their UK MD, which is also really exciting and feels like I'm going back and completing the journey where I left off at Cineworld and taking all the learnings from the last seven, eight years and and going back and picking up a brilliant, well-established multiplex player and taking that on the next step of its journey as well. So it's very exciting, very lucky, as I say. It's a great industry to be part of. Retail in 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 cinema is pretty much the looking after everything that we sell that isn't the film. And it, yeah, in the early days in Cineworld, it was very traditional multiplexes. So it was around cola, popcorn, candy. I am talking American now, aren't I? Sweets. Um, <laughs> and but you know, we picked up a lot of development that we'd done under the Virgin City, Virgin and UGC banners around bars into cinemas, driving the sale of you know alcoholic beverages, but also a step up in terms of food and drink with some cooked and f- prepped food. And so I looked after that at Cineworld. But then really, even though you know I had much better, stronger team under me looking after it, when I was at Everyman, the evolution of, of food and drink there was phenomenal. And you know, the success that we had and they continue to have in in really driving the focus on on really good high quality food and drink, you know, beyond just the traditional cinema snacks. So whether it's burgers, sliders, milkshakes, cocktails, you know, good wines, etc. And again, I think that's where the crossover is really interesting with what uh, what's already been done with Showcase, uh, but still, you know, something we want to do a lot more on is how do you then bring. You know, Every man is a very um, it's a boutique operation. They deliver very high attentive levels of service in the luxury end, but to quite small volumes of admissions. You know what Showcase do brilliantly is bring a fabulous premium multiplex experience to much higher volumes of customers, um, which adds and amplifies that social experience, which is so important in our large screens. But how can we still bring a broader taste and a higher quality taste of food and drink to an audience on that scale. And that's that's one of the many exciting challenges here. The community engagement that every man was doing during the pandemic was just great. It was a very personal sort of thing. What lessons do you take from that that you can apply towards the multiplex? I was at Everyman when we hit lockdown and I had to reopen it for the summer of 2020. And it was really interesting to cross because Showcase Cinemas and, and Everyman were, were the first to get reopened. And we've talked a lot about it, how the ethos of both companies was very similar, which was 
let's get back open. Sure, we didn't have major films, but cinema is more important than just the tentpole releases. It's more important culturally. It's more important as part of the community. And that is an ethos that's shared by both companies, delivered in very different ways on very different scales. But we both believed, look, let's keep our customers engaged, the ones that want to be and are happy to come back out quickly. Let's keep them engaged. Let's keep that momentum of cinema going the habit of cinema going. And we all know that that's really important, both on micro and macro occasions. We're experiencing it here in the UK at the moment. There's this tremendous momentum building with a terrific release schedule that we've been longing for for a long time. And that thing where you have a new release every week or two, and every time someone's coming into cinema, they're seeing a brilliant trailer for something that's only two, three, four, five, six weeks away. That's what keeps momentum going. That's what really builds admissions. And it's easily lost as well. So when you have, as we had last year, two big periods of three, four months with far less mainstream titles out there, the cinema going habit was lost. Cinema is a massively important moment of escape that I believe is becoming even more important in this world that we live in. I always talk about the fact that there's no other justifiable reason you can give a friend, a family member or a boss for not having answered your phone in this day and age, except that you're in a cinema. You know, we live with our phones all the time and nobody is not on their phone except for two, two and a half hours in a, in a film, in a cinema, when it's absolutely expected that you turn it off. So, you know, if someone, if your partner rings you, I says, where were you? You know, a few hours ago, I was in the cinema. It's acceptable. Anything else isn't. And that... <laughs> not, not, Which it's, it's so isolated. I mean, you're just kind of locked into your own world. And there's not really that much opportunity nowadays for you to just be in a room with a whole bunch of people kind of absorbing that energy. Completely. And it's exactly those two things. It's on the one hand, it's the digital switch off. Yeah, two and a half hours, three hours of actually not being on your phone. And then it's exactly what you just said, that power of the social experience, you know, that collective wow. And, you know, I again, another thing I've rolled out many times, that comedies are just funnier with 100 other people. Horrors are just more scary of 100 other people. Dramas are just more tearful with 100 other people. And however great the availability of content and size of our TVs in the rooms. None of us have a living room big enough to fit 100 people in. And certainly I don't have 100 friends to put in there anyway. So it's like, you know, you you have that shared collective experience that just isn't replicated. And that's why, it's, that's why it is bouncing back so strong. That's why we are going full circle and all the disruption, all the disruption that we've had to face the last two or three years. You know, we're coming back out of it and, and really, really healthily too. Sometimes bad movies are good in the cinema if you have the right audience. <laughs> and sometimes films that are start badly, you have to stick with it in the cinema and end up good. Whereas at home, you switch it off after 25 minutes if it hasn't hooked you. You know, it's, it's unforgiving at home. It's a very different viewing experience. And the availability of content at home and on the move is a positive thing for us all because more and more people are getting hooked on really good quality filmed entertainment. And the more people are hooked on it, the more likely they are to go to the cinema. But you just cannot replace that 100% attentive, uninterrupted cinema-going experience. So before you were with Showcase, I know uh, there was that stint uh, where you were doing the really local group work and, and really working to bring cinemas to community centers. I know that's something that you're, you're really passionate about. What was your cinema growing up? What was my cinema growing up? Yeah. It was a tiny little cinema in a small little town in the west of England called Chippenham that's subsequently been re renovated and is now a very nice little cinema. It wasn't when I was going in the 1980s. It's funny, I talked to lots of people, including my children, and, and refer to, you know, when I grew up in the 80s, we used to, in the UK, and I don't feel it's the same in the US, but refer to the cinemas as the flea pits because they were underinvested, tatty, shabby. They were really, really poor experiences. So yeah, that was my local cinema and it was an important part of my growing up. Um, but I still never intended to get into cinema. And for the nostalgia piece, I agree. However, the piece that I always keeps me grounded about how lucky I am to be in this industry, but also how how important and sometimes how unimportant we are to customers, which I think is important to remember is that people on average are going in the UK pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, 
were going two and a half times a year. So your average customer was going every four and a half, five months. So we all live and breathe the industry. We, we should be, you know, get high on it. We're proud of it, passionate about it. And we go lots. And we don't often remember that most of our customers coming through our doors are only coming every three or four months. My point being that when they do, they do want an indulgent experience. Now, what is indulgence for one person is very different for another, you know, but, you know, that's why, you know, again, Plugin Showcase took this decision 10 years ago to really invest in seats, put recliners in. They've always, you know, our screens, I would, are second to none out there. The quality, the AV standards, the screen, the on-screen presentation, the sound is stunning. And, you know, that has to be the case. You know, we have independent cinemas in the UK that also play to a hyper-frequent, a hyper-film buff. That's great, and cinemas like that should exist, but there aren't actually that many hyper-film buffs. And, you know, terrific. Those cinemas cater for that. You've got boutique cinemas over here catering to the much more indulgent upmarket. But most people want, you know, they do want a brilliant, really high-quality multiplex experience and a really good, seat great food and drink snack traditional snacking and great sound and vision all the high tech and the screens and the audio and the the fancy this and that and then the the programming i think i mean what gets lost sometimes in my experience as a as a moviegoer and i won't mention any specific theaters though i am thinking of some there's a customer service element that's missing like if i go see an imax movie it looks great it's amazing but if i'm walk into the auditorium and there's a concession stand and there's nobody there and I want some popcorn. Like there's the the basics that you can't take for granted that, oh, of course somebody's going to come and see Oppenheimer or see Barbie or, or see any of these big films. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And that customer service is fundamental and it's, it's that important part of, you know, I talk about it being the wrapper around the film. Um, you know, the film at the end of the day is what is driving someone to come to your cinema. Uh, we don't get people casually just popping in to buy some popcorn and leaving again, not in any great numbers anyway. Uh, they're coming to see, you know, Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer. They're coming to see Barbie. Uh, they're coming to see that film. And, you know, when the lights go down, you, you're kind of putting your customers in the hands of the director and hoping they're having a great experience. But what we have to do is put that wrapper around it. And that customer experience is everything from the first point of thinking about going to a cinema, the engagement digitally with apps and websites and making that seamless and even exciting and part of that journey through to arriving in the site. And, and as, as you say, you know, it almost seems trite now to talk about being welcomed and smiled and smiled at. But that's a brilliant basic, you know, but actually also you know, people come to cinema, they do want a Coke, they do want a popcorn. They do say actually delivering that in a speedy, efficient, fun, exciting and polite way is a fundamental basic of what a customer wants and needs and adds that wrapper. You know, I always talked about this, you know, through it's true in Showcase, it's true in Everyman, it's true in so many different um, companies. You know, if the film is ultimately disappointing, and sometimes films are disappointing, sorry to any distributors that are watching right now, then if you've put a good wrapper around it, then you you dilute, uh, you dilute that disappointment. If the film's great, as most of them are, obviously, you amplify that. But it's a massively important part because if you are not delivering that great service before and after the film, then you you are just starting to increasingly be selling a commodity which we're not, we're selling an experience. More and more theaters, uh, like Everyman, like Showcase, going towards the more, you know, expanded concessions, the dine-in, the alcohol, the this and the that. Like, it's it's just another layer of customer service that's needed or just ways that you can trip up. Like, even if the food's not good, hopefully the food's good. But <laughs> if the service is, is bad, that's a really easy way to lose someone. It is. It is. And it's, you know, there are all so, so many cliches about it, but, you know, it's just one bad customer experience and it can take a couple of years for someone to try you again, you know? So, you know, bad experiences are just not acceptable. It's just a no-no. It's for so many reasons, but, you know, you turn it into a positive and when, you know, customers are given that little extra, when you surprise and delight them, when you have a member of staff who really engages and makes them laugh, then that actually has a disproportionate positive effect too really does. How do you feel about 
the recovery of the UK cinema market compared to pre-pandemic. What are your hopes and what are you thinking is going to be the case by the end of the year? The midterm trend is is encouraging and going upwards, and we're all very excited about the next few months and, and the end of this year. And I think, yeah, realistically, you know, we'll all be delighted if you know the end of this year we are less than twenty percent behind pre-COVID. And I think we're all looking forward to next year and thinking, you know, absolutely, we can build on that, and maybe we can get to maybe ten percent below. Um, yeah, whatever whatever the trend is, it's upwards. And actually, I think you know, most of us we obviously want to get back up a bit as quickly as possible, but we'd rather it'll slow and steady recovery than, than boom and bust again. I think that the market is going to there's going to be change in the market and adapt to it. Yeah, cinemas are closing, unfortunately, but not many in reality when you look at it. And I think great cinemas are are excelling and doing well. And I think that Cinemas that continue to invest in and develop the offer have every opportunity to get the audiences back that they were enjoying in 2019. But we are going to have to work hard for it. You know, audiences are going to be less forgiving. They've become increasingly less forgiving, to be honest, over the last 20 years. So everything we've talked about becomes even more important. You know, substandard cinemas, substandard service is not going to be able to work. Yeah, there are too many other options. Yeah, too many other options. But, you know, actually what has been proven time and time again, and it's been proven now, is if you've got great content and it's been delivered in great cinemas with great customer service, then people are going to flock back. And they are at the moment. So I think, you know, we're all going to have to work harder. That's no bad thing. Customers are going to be demanding more. No bad thing. For those sites that can deliver that, for those cinemas, chains, businesses that can deliver that, then there's a, a really healthy future ahead. But it's just changed. Give you a glass half full, we're already back to within 20% of this amazing modern day peak. It's not good enough. We need every business out there, every cinema business out there needs the market to grow back further. But it's on the right track. It's on the right trajectory. And once again, that was Crispin Lilly, the Managing Director of UK Cinemas over at Showcase Cinemas. Earlier, you heard from the VP of Engineering over at Christie, David Kears, in our sponsor segment of this episode. And even earlier, if you go back all that way, we had Russ Fisher from the Box Office Studios and my colleague, Rebecca Pauly, joining me, Daniel Luria, for the big news box office and Cine Europe rundown of this episode series. A huge thank you to Ice Theaters and Christy for their support of our episodes over the last three weeks. The Box Office Podcast will return with new episodes next Thursday. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share with your friends. This show is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thank you once again for listening, as always, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>